Hello, listeners. I'm Julia Aoki with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host, Am Johal, is joined by Bruce Mutzvero, professor of media and culture studies at Utrecht University and a 2023 SFU Siri researcher in residence. Together, they discuss Bruce's transition from journalism to academia, the complexities of citizen journalism, and the state of journalism in Africa. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again. We have a special guest joining us from Utrecht, Bruce Matvero. Uh, Bruce, I wonder if we can begin with you introducing yourself a little bit. Yes, uh, thanks. I'm uh, a professor in the Department of Media and Culture Studies at Utrecht University here in the Netherlands. And I have previously worked in the U.S. at Auburn University, uh, also in Australia at the University of Technology, Sydney, at Northumbria University in the U.K. Before then, I studied here and also in the U.K. Bruce, you you made a kind of an interesting transition from journalism to academia. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to your work as a journalist and what led you into moving in a, in a more academic direction or what were the questions that were driving you? So first about your your journalism and then your sort of journey into looking at the, the academic framing around some of these questions uh, that journalism brings to the surface. So yeah, I I think my 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 dream or my passion was always in journalism. Uh, ever since I was young, I always wanted to be a journalist. You know, my my father used to send me to buy a newspaper, and I guess I would uh, read uh, the newspaper on my way back. And uh, I think that is how I developed my interest in in in, uh, in newspapers in general, but in journalism. Uh, uh, specifically, so yeah, I, uh, I I then you know when I was in, doing my undergrad, it was quite clear I wanted to be a journalist. I remember being in a class with a lot of students who were not very sure what they wanted to do, but for me it was quite clear. After my uh, my my BA, uh, I went to Cardiff, and because I knew that the program was quite well respected, so I I then went to to do my masters there, and immediately after that. I then got a job uh, studying, working as a reporter at the, at the AP office in, in in Amsterdam. It was really by coincidence how I got into the the academia. I think I never saw myself as uh, as an academic. Uh, I was always interested in journalism, and the way it happened was there is a local university, American university here called Webster University. I think the the main campus is somewhere in the U.S. and uh, their com- uh, their campus is in the city uh, of Leiden. You probably know it because you you were here. Uh, and- it happened that the person who was in charge of the communication program then was an American uh, lady, and she called into the AP office looking for somebody to, to give a guest lecture. In fact, she was clear she was looking for my bureau chief, Arthur Marx, uh, uh, at that time. And he happened to be away reporting. I think he was in Jerusalem or he was somewhere. I can't remember. Basically, I then mentioned that he was not there. She wanted somebody to talk about the 
you know, the Prophet Muhammad cartoons and the whole, that was the, the, that time when, you know, many countries in the Middle East uh, had decided to stop purchasing Danish products because of this whole controversy that had happened in Denmark, purely by coincidence, because then I, uh, he, she then said, would you mind coming to Webster uh, to talk to students about this? And I say, well, I, I have never, I've never been in front of students, you know, so I cannot imagine myself being talking to students. I've, uh, you know, I can't do it. And somehow, I don't know, she encouraged me uh, to, to do it. So I ended up going to give this guest lecture. And that was the start of it. Because after that, I think I knew what a PhD was. But uh, what then happened was that there was uh, a teaching slot immediately the semester that followed. That she then called me again and said, hey, we are looking for somebody to come and teach. Would you be interested to teach a journalism course here? And I was like, ah, okay. Well, let's see how it goes. And then obviously from then, I then started to, I started thinking about doing a, a, a PhD and then moved into the academia. So it was really unplanned, but you know, uh, as as I'm sure everybody has their own sort of stories and their unique ways of getting into the academia. I guess this this is how it happened for me. And uh, yeah, because, you know, I, I don't come from a, a rich family or something like that. I just come from a normal family. And in my family, I was pro I'm probably the first person to go to university. So we I did, you know, we didn't grow up being told that, you know, there's a PhD at this or that. Or I didn't know what I didn't even know what it was. So <laughs> I just followed what this journey uh, led me to. And uh, somehow I ended up in, in the academia. Now, Bruce, there's, you know, over the years, there have been many ways to explore ways to challenge, disrupt traditional media infrastructure, their norms and, and power dynamics. I know that you've done research in Africa on citizen journalists, activists use of online based technologies, as well as digital and data dissidents. And I'm wondering if you could, first of all, you know, speak to the broader challenges of the power dynamics with media and then the new forms of journalism that are emerging trying to disrupt or or challenge more traditional forms of journalism i think first of all media has or journalism specifically has traditionally been constrained in 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 many african countries and you could perhaps also say in many non-western societies it doesn't obviously mean that here in the west everything always works the way that we expect it to but what you actually see in uh, in many african societies is that many citizens have taken to online communities to try and uh, express themselves, to try and uh, find a way to say no, to try and find a voice that perhaps they've never had. Uh, and of course, I'm speaking in general. It's quite interesting because if you look at uh, the uh, World Press Freedom Rankings of 2022, what you see is it's quite interesting in the sense that some countries like Namibia or Cap Verde, which are African uh, countries, they are ranked quite higher. It, in fact, much better than the UK or the US. But of course, uh, I'm just pointing to 
to these two as examples to show that, I mean, it's not all doom and gloom on the African continent. Uh, but the point is, in many authoritarian states uh, of the African continent, citizens see this as an opportunity to galvanize support uh, and fight against, uh, against totalitarianism. Now, what you then see, on the other hand, is that, well, the these regimes uh, have also realized the potential that the online technologies provide. So particularly with regards to the Chinese-funded sort of technological mechanisms, say, eavesdrop or target human rights activists, journalists, and people that are, uh, that the government consider to be traitors or against, uh, or people who are against their belief or their commitment to try and stay in power. This then brings a tug of war in a way because people, journalists or activists, they, they get haunted uh, by, uh, by, by governments because governments also are seeing the opportunity uh, that uh, these uh, technologies can bring in terms of also trying to see who and what is being said by those who are against them. So we, we have a very difficult situation in that regard. Uh, you have a situation, for example, a country like Sudan, you know, uh, Omar al-Bashir, the former president, had said, well, I would never quit, I would never leave the power. Interestingly, actually, those protests that were started on, on social media uh, platforms like uh, Twitter and Facebook, that eventually led to him being uh, ousted. It doesn't mean, of course, that the situation is, is better as we are speaking. You may know, of course, Western diplomats and many people are being evacuated in Sudan. So the situation doesn't always get better by removing a dictator. But as we have seen also in Arab Spring countries, and I think the Arab Spring was more of a trigger, right? Uh, 2010, 2011, people uh, thought a democracy would come to most of these countries, particularly in African countries, because they were seeing what was happening in North Africa, in, 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 the, in the Arab world. But what we've seen is, uh, apart from, I think, a very few examples like Sudan, uh, in this case, you remove the leader, but then it doesn't mean that the upheaval or it doesn't stop the upheaval or it doesn't bring peace. Uh, they, you know, it's, it's like problem after problem. So you remove this problem. This guy has been there for a long time. Uh, now... Uh, you are looking for peace or you're hoping that now that this guy is gone, there is an opportunity. But then in some cases, you know, you 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 speak to people on the ground, they tell you, well, it's actually Gaddafi was better or situation was, was better when Gaddafi was there, for example. It's a very tough uh, situation. But what is quite clear is technologies are being used and 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 of course there are challenges it's it's not like uh, a situation where you have 90% of uh, of the country having access or being able to use these uh, technologies there's digital divide you know there's digital illiteracy it's expensive also just uh, to have access to data you know then it becomes an elite uh, i mean you must have some money to be able to actually access data because you 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 cannot forget that most of these countries are already poor you know the the inequalities the long standing inequalities between the south and the north 
uh, you see that here they get exacerbated and you see that the situation does not get better. But I think it depends. You have to look at these situations from perhaps not from a sort of universal or from a, a 154 country nation, sort of Africa, but to look at what is happening in Botswana, what is happening in Angola, what is happening in Mozambique. Because, of course, even though they are all African countries, they do not always have uh, similar problems or challenges. Bruce, now you reported for the AP in Africa as well, in Ghana, Zimbabwe, Angola, South Africa, a number of places. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to what you found uh, memorable from that period of, of working as a reporter. Yeah, it was uh, it was fun. I think most of uh, my AP reporting on the African continent, I mean, I, I didn't really do a lot of conflict reporting and all that. I mean, I remember covering all the, the, the elections in Zimbabwe. It, it gave you the opportunity to see things the way they are and 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 of of course i think it doesn't get better than the ap of course in in terms of having the experience to or being led by people with a lot of experience in journalism and who have a sort of a unique way of telling stories. So yeah, I have fond memories about that period. I would go to Ghana, to Angola, you know, to do covering the African Cup of Nations. Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was just something that was memorable and it was great to be close to the people. And, and, and I think this in a way has had a, a, a huge influence on my research. I realized I had actually, I had developed Africa had actually given me a name as a reporter. It had given me the opportunity to to, to report and, and, and write. I decided, if you like to call it, uh, to launch my academic career also within the African continent. And to was it something that I already knew? Develop the networks, the contacts, the connections that you need to be able to actually do academic work, and also the knowledge. You know, it's a vast continent, of course, uh, more than 150 countries, and it helps to be able to to have some networks within uh, within the continent, and uh, to go back uh, to some of the people that you've worked with uh, during your time as a journalist, and to use them as networks and contacts for the uh, academic work that I do. I think it's. It makes me feel very privileged and lucky in that regard to be able to look at things from both the journalistic but also academic perspective and focusing on one continent. I mean, Africa has a lot of opportunity. It's a continent where I was also born. I was born in Zimbabwe and my father still lives in Zimbabwe, of course. So you 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 go back and, you know, you, you see the connections. It feels like uh, you are also writing about something that you know that is close to you you when you are doing it you feel like you have to do it right because you know whatever you write and whatever you say affects people uh, in terms of their decisions and their perceptions of the continent so you you are a journalist but you also become more of an advocate as well you know because you want things to be fair you want things to be rational you want things to be done in a very right manner and uh, yeah you know it's 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 not for me to judge but I feel like I've always wanted wanted uh, the challenge of being a reporter but and and also at the same time being able to to be on the forefront uh, of uh, writing and researching Africa and the and the global south it's as i've said i think it's it's a privilege in that regard 
Bruce, you know, I know that you have interest in exploring the risks to journalists and forms of crises reporting, looking at the intersection of press freedom, the safety of journalists and conflict. We've seen you know, incredible rise in attacks on journalists from both states and other malicious actors uh, for people just simply doing their jobs as journalists. As you've studied you know, journalism and, and researched it, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to the trends around the attack on journalism as a profession and also journalists as people doing their, their work. There's incredible uh, amount of duress and uh, attacks on, on safety that are that are present globally, not just in the African um, context. We had Maria Ressa come and uh, speak here last year and had a number of fellows uh, with a foundation based in, in Vancouver where we had a chance to meet a number of really brave journalists who are doing this work on the ground in, in many countries around the world. But I'm wondering if you can speak to that aspect of your research. It's very coincidental that you mentioned Maria Ressa because last year I also was on a panel with her in uh, at the Nobel Peace uh, Center in Oslo in Norway and uh, we were actually talking about this as I'm sure you know particularly when it comes to safety for her I mean her situation is perhaps very unique in the in, in the fact that she was really targeted uh, for a very long time by by the state uh, by the Philippines government but Maria Ressa is not you know is is not alone and in fact uh, journalism has become uh, more and more often dangerous profession i mean people see journalists as threats you see journalists or journalism as a threat particularly if you have something to hide i would say you know and and this is not to say that journalists uh, uh always get it right but i always see journalism uh, as giving an opportunity to everybody, including the dictator, including anyone who actually has something against journalism. I, I don't think it is possible uh, in this day and age to consider journalists as enemy. Journalists, I think their job is to report, to tell what is happening so that people can make informed decisions. Now, indeed, as you said, uh, particularly during the COVID-19 era, still not, not gone completely but you we saw that's when i mean this whole concept of democratic deficit sort of gathered uh, momentum because even in the western world you know where journalism has traditionally been respected we saw that uh, many police across the world they used the lockdown uh, measures as uh, sort of an excuse to stop journalists from doing their their job so it has become a very difficult uh, job for, for 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 many people on the African continent. You know, this has always been a big problem, because of course, if you look at it from a political perspective, many political leaders in in Africa have traditionally wanted have this idea of uh, staying, you know, in power. You have. Let's take a, a good example in Uganda. Uh, since 2021, the Ugandan government has uh, banned Facebook. So Facebook is not, uh, it is impossible or it is not uh, allowed legally to, uh, I mean, people use VPN and, you know, but 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 legally people are not allowed to have access to, to Facebook as we speak. More like the way it is in China. And, and, and you know, the, the, the president, has been in power for decades. And uh, you think, well, look, what are you trying to hide? Uh, why is this platform, what is it 
uh, shown to you? What does it mean to you to the extent that you would want to actually stop citizens from accessing it? I think many of these governments, they have seen that, you know, these platforms not only arm or provide the opportunities to journalists as professionals, but also to people, to ordinary people, because people, uh, the, the information that traditionally they have tried to propagandize, if you like, to try not to provide the truth to the people, uh, now people have alternatives. They have, uh, you know, they, they see what the government or when the government is lying. And, and, and so the better way uh, to stop people from uh, having this access to social media platforms is to just stop it. And it's not just Uganda. I think many African governments have, uh, the last uh, uh, years, have decided to just uh, stop access to the internet whenever there's they, they, they fear there might be riots or they just uh, shut it down. Internet shutdowns and, uh, you know, social media shutdowns uh, have become a thing now, you know, uh, because they realize that this uh, platform is a threat to them. When you talk of journalism or journalist safety, uh, and you actually see that there is a problem and it's not getting better, you know, uh, and it's not traditionally we would only talk about countries which notoriously have jailed or, you know, in the so-called conflict countries. But now I think the general, the safety of journalists is something that is taken for granted, including in countries that are at peace. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's very worrying. Uh, let's put it that way. It's uh, I mean, we're I'm working right now in uh, Ethiopia and in Mali, and we are uh, with the, with my team. We are trying to look at how mis or disinformation rather accessibates uh, conflict. And uh, in doing this work, we have spoken to tons and tons of journalists, uh, local journalists, and they see, of course, the upsage of or the ubiquity of uh, disinformation, which is being shared or which gets propagated using online uh, uh, platforms. And there is also a safety issue for some of them because they are already living in a country that is confronted by conflict. And what is always problematic for them is, of course, particularly in these two countries that I've just mentioned, there is an issue of ethnicity. Most of the conflict depends uh, or is being driven by ethnic wars. So, you know, as a journalist, you have to be extremely careful, not just in terms of following your ethics, uh, but also people are willing to accept what you are saying without even verifying just because you belong to the to this ethnicity, because this ethnicity is believed. It's it's unsafe. If you come to a, a minority sort of a, a ethnicity and you report something that might be seen to be untruthful, you get targeted by the people. So yeah, there's a lot of uh, problems, uh, particularly if you try to intersect, on one hand, journalism, uh, a conflict, and safety of journalists, I, and I think I think governments and and journalists themselves. I think we 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 need to do more, and we need to do more research also, and find ways to try and protect and and, and make the situation better, particularly for journalists. Now, with the growth of you know different forms of citizen journalism and the shift of power that they sometimes offer, that can you know promote modes of greater democracy in media, but they also 
increase the risks for individual journalists who might be lacking in affiliations or support structures that they offer. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to kind of what the possibilities of citizen journalism are, but also kind of challenges to those forms of of working. Yes, I think citizen journalism has given many and many communities an opportunity. It's, first of all, there are issues with trust, right? Uh, And I don't think this is only non-Western societies, but I think trust, many governments, many many people also here in the West, they don't trust their governments. It's, it's, It's sort of tumbling. Trust in governments is tumbling. And I think trust in journalism also has fallen. So citizen journalism has not only given the opportunity for people to voice their concerns, but it has also given them the chance to to do journalism themselves. I mean, this obviously does not always mean that uh, there are no ethical concerns or there are no issues of doing that, of course. Uh, and of course, uh, you you have other scholars who have even questioned whether citizen journalism should even be called journalism because, uh, you know, there are ethical concerns about it. But again, I think when you talk of citizen journalism, you need to be very much context-specific. You can't universalize it. Uh, in some countries, citizens are have been weaponized or citizens have the few encouraged because this is the only way citizen journalism offers them the opportunity to say no, to say enough is enough. Citizen journalism offers an opportunity to uh, give a voice, particularly with the advent of social media. And, and I think the whole world, we have seen very good examples such as the mutual movement, you know, these are citizens taking to social media, trying to say, well, look, enough with this. Now, the problem is, of course, one, the ethical issues of how do we ensure that citizen journalism can actually be trusted? Because in most cases, I mean, journalism, the idea behind journalism is, even though, of course, Rupert Murdoch has sort of changed uh, that sort of mindset with this sort of business business sort of approach to journalism, right? That uh, I think with Rupert Murdoch or with Fox News, we see that it's more opinionated. It's opinions are more powerful, right, or encouraged. But I think traditionally what the idea behind journalism is to source, is to have somebody to, 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 to provide or to get somebody who can be a source that can be verified by yourself as a journalist, but by other people. Now, with citizen journalism, sometimes you don't need that or you don't have that because, you know, I think we are now moving or we have moved, we have switched from sort of the the whole idea of citizen journalists, the way that we saw them during the Iran riots, if you think about that, or, you know, the Arab Spring, to, I think, a new form of, like, influencers, you know, influencers. They, they, you know, somebody who has a million people following them. Then, you know, they come out and they say, well, this is how it should be. And uh, they expect, and, you know, those people who are following them, they think, oh, yeah, this guy or this woman knows what he or she or they are doing, so we've got to follow them. This is where the danger is about citizen journalism as well. 
Uh, because, uh, for example, I can talk to you about uh, someone that we interviewed, an influencer in, in Ethiopia, who said, look, I'm trying to put food on the table here. Most of the people who have interest in spreading disinformation, they pay me, they give me money so that I could express a narrative, I can share a narrative. They know that I have a lot of people who follow me uh, and that, that I'm an influencer. And because I want to also feed family, and I need money, this is the way I'm being paid. So I have to take the money and sometimes peddle lies or disinformation. And I know that it's not true, but, you know, uh, it's difficult for me not to, because if I don't do that, I I, I cannot feed my family. So it's it's really uh, difficult. And, 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 and I think it shows, it leads us to broader issues on a global scale of inequalities as well. Because this is somebody who can recognize themselves that they are an agent of disinformation. They know what they're doing is, is, is not right. But they are saying, well, what, which other way should I do it? Because I don't have a job. I don't have a source of income. And this is the only way for me to leave. So, yeah, it, it has certainly its, its positive sides. Uh, uh, but it can also see why some people, or why it's not a cup of tea for everybody. You know, some people are very critical. Because now I think, as I've said, I think citizen journalism has been broadened. And it, there are many different forms and ways. And, and I think it is time also to even redefine what it is. You know, what is citizen journalists? Do, are we saying, do we consider influencers as citizen journalists? Or do they see, do they also see themselves as citizen journalists? I mean, this particular influencer that uh, I'm talking about, uh, he said he sees himself as a citizen journalist. In fact, he was trained as a journalist and he couldn't find a job as a journalist. And now he is a citizen journalist who is peddling lies, basically, and, uh, and does not... And it feels bad about it, but he asks me, so what is uh, the alternative for me to leave? And, mm -hmm. and yeah, and I can also not help them. Yeah, you know, there there has, of course, been this trend, and you mentioned uh, Fox News, but there's so many examples of the conflation of journalism with co commentary that has become a kind of normalized kind of way of utilizing the journalistic profession to give uh, political messages and repetition, something that maybe fits more within the world of uh, political communication than journalism per se. But even when journalism is done well, we still are living in a time where the journalist who gets to frame the story, the narrative, it still sits with the journalist themselves oftentimes. And sure, it has to go through processes of verification and all of these things in terms of being replicatable and verification of sources and those types of things. But the power to shape the narrative, even when journalism is done well, places a kind of role and a great amount of power with journalists as well. I'm wondering if you can speak to um, both the conflation of journalism and commentary, but also when journalism is done well, the power to shape narratives and the, the power that journalists have in being able to convey in the realm of mass communication, that there's there's a lot of power there as well. 
Yes, it's funny that you mentioned power, and uh, power, I think, is at the center of everything. And, and by coincidence, myself, Ulike Klinger, and Daniel Kreis, we have just done a book, and it's called Platforms, Power, and Politics. It's, it's more of an introduction to political communication. We're trying to look at uh, how powerful platforms are and have become, or how they are shaping the political communication discourse. I think and there is also a chapter that specifically deals with journalism. I think what is quite interesting regarding what you've just said, I, I think at the end of the day, it is really about power. Power is everything. And, uh, and, 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 and I think journalists have traditionally had the power. And, 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 and I think you could say that power has also shifted in some way, particularly if you look at also the role that citizen journalists, you know, journalists, uh, we do, we no longer need uh, a letter to the editor uh, as a way of communicating with journalists. You know, journalists are on Twitter. Journal- I mean, people can see what is happening themselves. It, it is more difficult to only look at journalists as being the only sort of power brokers here. I think you can also say that uh, citizens uh, have retained some form of power. I think the question is what kind of power this is, because I think journalists have power, but I think when journalists don't get it right or they don't do it in the right way, it's actually the citizens with the power to actually point point it out. It's no longer sort of hidden, you know. It's like this McLuhan uh, global village, right, where we all have a feel like we have some access or we know what is happening, even though I might be in the Netherlands, uh, I know what is happening in Canada if I read uh, a, a Canadian newspaper. But do I have the power? I think I think these are questions that, again, uh, are very sort of context related. And I think are questions that we need to continue sort of probing, because what kind of power do, do journalists have? Uh, how has it shifted? Uh, who else has power? I, I think the power sometimes, if you think about, say, you know, people like, like, uh, like Modoc, is it just... Fox News, that is the power, as, as for example, as, as a channel, or it is actually Modoc and his own empire, or the, the supporters uh, behind behind him, or people who support uh, his sort of style of journalism, who actually have the power, or is the power with somebody who can read and uh, disagrees and decides to put it on Twitter or share it on Twitter to say, well, this is not right. You know, something, somebody has to change this. I guess everybody has power now, but how is this power mediated? How is this power exercised? And ultimately, I think even when you have power, or when you actually have power to stop or to challenge. Ultimately, I think what it comes down to is whether those who you want to change their ways actually end up changing their ways. Because, you know, you, uh, I think, you know, during COVID, for example, we saw people exercising their power to demonstrate, to say enough is enough, or to say, you know, we can't accept this, but did it really lead to any sort of meaningful change? I think that is, that is uh, maybe what we also need to, to look at, because I don't know, is power still powerful if it just you having the power to demonstrate particularly when maybe whatever you're demonstrating against stays the same or there's no change that actually comes 
yeah, I think these are questions, and and I, I don't know if uh, if I'm the the expert uh, on that, but I think what what it just shows here is. Uh, yeah, we have these power dynamics which are consistently sort of changing. I think uh, it is very important going forward to perhaps also invest in further research that speaks to different constituencies of the world to see how power is or continues to shift, particularly in the in the in the digital age. Bruce, is there anything you'd you'd like to add? You know, I think one thing that I, I would like to add is just briefly is the power that communities have, and and which is of course why I'm uh, I'm coming to to work with you, uh, and why we are working together. Actually, why I'm excited about it is because of that. Because I was I you know if you look, uh, I was talking to a journalist, local journalist in Holland uh, uh, last week, and we we're talking about disinformation. We're saying what is where is the solution. I think the communities is, and that is also what I said, uh, what we see today is, of course, that less educated or uneducated people feel completely neglected, abandoned, and they don't trust the elites. You know, they, they think they are conspiracy theories about governments, about people who are educated taking over and, and all these kind of things. And I feel that one of the most powerful tools that we have is a dialogue with those people. Because I don't think it, it really works to just say, oh, these people are not educated. You know, let's just leave them. They don't know what they are talking about. Because I think now, today, uh, everybody, you know, everybody feels like they're an expert. <laughs> you know, you can't say you and I, because we, we have PhDs or I don't know, we, we, we have studied or written books. We can no longer say we are the only experts. I think today, everybody's an expert, or at least they feel like that. And, and I, I always like it when you have an ordinary person on a panel. If, if you're having a panel of experts, then maybe get somebody who is not considered an expert, but becomes an expert because of their life experiences. And I, and I feel this community engagement becomes really unique and very important today. If we do research that does not engage or that abandons or does not speak to the people that we write about, I think it's kind of like fighting a losing battle because academia then becomes a bubble, you know. Uh, so I really like this whole idea that we should try to invest in the communities that we live in and uh, see them more not as problems, but as solutions to, to, to the issues that we face as a society. That's the only thing I wanted to add. Bruce, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. We look forward to your visit to Vancouver. You will have already come and gone by the time this episode gets out, but look forward to collaborating with you uh, much more as well. Thank you. Thank you, Em, and uh, thanks for having me. It's really an honor to speak to you here, and I also look forward to collaborating with you in the next few months. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our episode with Bruce Mutzfaro. Head to the show notes to learn more about the films and resources mentioned in the show. You can follow us on social media at SFU underscore VOCE to keep up to date on new podcast releases.